Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, so a guy goes to the doctor, and uh, the doctor tells him, I'm sorry, sir, but you're going to have to uh, stop engaging in self-love. And the guy says, why? And the doctor goes, "Uh, well, sir, because I'm examining you. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from the Frank Stanton Studios in Los Angeles, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. This week's icebreaker came from Luke Burbank, host of America's second favorite podcast, Too Beautiful to Live. Here, here. And later we'll be hearing from our guest of honor, documentary filmmaker Gary Hustwit. But now, it's time for Small Talk. So, Brendan, this week, Senator Ted Kennedy said, hey, everybody's doing it, and passed away. Mm, Sad but true. Uh, The CIA torture memos were released. Sad but true. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess they redacted the part about self-torture because Ben Bernanke accepted a second term as Fed chairman. That is a sucker for punishment. (laughs) That's got to be up there with being the O'Doul's girl at Mardi Gras (laughs) as far as worst jobs. Anyway, before Rico and I pass away, uh, we asked our friends at Marketplace to tell us about some stories that weren't in the headlines. Phyllis Owens, commentary editor from Marketplace, what's your story this week? The Brazilian government's worried about something they're calling the Viagra effect. Their economy is just too potent? No. They believe Viagra is the reason why so many older men are marrying younger women. And, and what's the problem with that? The problem is these men are dying, leaving behind hordes of young widows. And the government's having to pay pensions to these women for 30 years instead of what might have been just a couple of years. But on the other hand, the government's spending less on antidepressants, so they're saving money there. <laughs> Amy Scott, New York reporter, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, you would think that people would know better, but apparently they're still buying the old GM stock that's being liquidated, even though regulators have warned them that the stock will eventually be worthless. How much is the stock worth right now? It's been trading for under a dollar. So so it's kind of like a caffeine-free Pepsi Zero. <laughs> you, you pay 75 cents and you get absolutely nothing in return. <laughs> Patty Hirsch, senior editor of Marketplace, what's your story? It's all about Malibu finally being able to get its own city hall. Malibu hasn't had a town hall up until now. They had a city hall, but they had to rent it because real estate's really expensive in Malibu, of course, but a bunch of properties went into foreclosure, they were able to buy something cheaply. So what kind of business is going to go on at the Malibu Town Hall? You know, they're going to talk about important stuff. I mean, they've got a real sewage problem in Malibu. I thought they were going to put implants in the Malibu Hills, maybe. Okay, that's not helpful. Statue for Kelsey Grammer, maybe? You know, this this kind of frivolity is exactly the sort of problem that Malibu's... Is it called the Betty Ford Town Hall? There are some serious issues in Malibu, Brendan. (laughs) You can say that again. And now, time for cocktails. As always, we tell you something that happened in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like showing up for history class, and instead of a pop quiz, the professor hands out liquor. It's like some sort of dream. (laughs) Uh, So let's first tell you the history. This week back in 1883, Indonesia was ground zero for one of the most spectacular events in recorded history. Now, most folks at your dinner party won't have any idea what it was. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. The island of Krakatoa was about 2,000 feet tall. Sailors used it as a landmark to guide them through the Pacific. And one day in 1883, it disappeared. See, Krakatoa wasn't just any island. It was an active volcano. And for months, it had been especially active. At one point, a German boat reported a column of smoke spewing out of Krakatoa. 
seven miles tall. But people on the surrounding islands didn't seem worried. Some of them threw parties. Krakatoa was pretty far away after all. It was like a fireworks display. Then on August 27th came the real fireworks. Four eruptions with the combined force of 10,000 Hiroshima atom bombs literally blew Krakatoa apart. Waves of molten rock flowed over the sea and scorched villages 25 miles away. And then, because Mother Nature loves overkill, came the tsunamis, some of them over 100 feet tall. The party was over. Krakatoa killed 36,000 people, the deadliest eruption ever, and it affected everyone on Earth. Ash from the blast lowered global temperatures for years, and countries around the world reported ominous sunsets. You can see one today in the famous painting, The Scream. Some say Edvard Munch was inspired to paint it when Krakatoan ash turned Norway's skies blood red. That was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Jim Ramdahl. He's the bar manager at Vessel, a bar in Seattle, which just a couple decades ago was covered in ash when nearby Mount St. Helens blew her top. Jim, what cocktail does this story inspire you to make? So I wanted to make sort of a combination between like a Northwest volcano and Indonesia volcano for Krakatoa and St. Helens. Okay. So we start off with gin from here right around Seattle, the Voyager gin. Okay. A bit of lime juice. Uh, a little bit of simple syrup. Mm -hmm. And then since Krakatoa is in Indonesia, I had to use some Batavia Arak. Wow, what is that? Sort of they call it the rum of Indonesia. Okay. It tastes just a really kind of funky rum, but it's a good <laughs> funk. Okay, so you got the Batavia Arak in there, and you're pouring this all into a, 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 a glass? This is all to be shaken, yeah, a mixing okay. glass to be shaken. Okay. And then before you shake it, you put a, a sprig of rosemary in a short glass. Okay. And then put a little bit of absinthe over the rosemary, and you light it on fire. Whoa. Oils come out, all that, that pine quality comes out, a little bit of rosemary smoke comes out of it to get the aromas. I like it, and you're doing this on top of the other components. I do this, and then I, I pour the components on top of the rosemary. Then you put a big mound of crushed ice on top of the cocktail, so it kind of makes a mountain above the cocktail. And on top of that, we pour a bit of like a robust red wine. I use the Shiraz. And then the red wine is the lava? The red wine is the lava, and also because you mentioned the... The screen painting with the beautiful sunsets, yeah. it'll actually float into the drink, and it kind of creates a big reddish-purple haze on the top. Wow. What are you, you going to call it? I call it the blood and ashes. The blood and ashes. The old, like, curse word. Well, I hope the FCC guy who's listening to this right now... That, um... That's why. That's kind of why I picked it. You know, <laughs> curse words we can say on the radio. <laughs> but I think the people are so old that uh, do censorship, they may actually think it's still a curse. They may. It's true. <laughs> so, Brendan, speaking of the ashes part... Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Krakatoa is actually active again. Really? Yeah, there was where where it fell into the sea. A new volcano has formed called Child of Krakatoa, <laughs> and it is it was active this summer. Actually, is it really called Child of Krakatoa? Yeah, it's like a Naka Krakatoa. <laughs> I'm glad you told me this because you know volcanoes are one of those things when you're a kid that are like ever present in your brain. Yes. And then you get older and they disappear. You know. Yeah. Like dinosaurs and unbridled joy. <laughs> You know, those things reserved for children. Chocolate milk. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if you have any news of impending disasters or secrets for happiness, send them to us at dinnerparty at americanpublicmedia.org.
Our guest of honor this week is Gary Hustwit, producer of rockumentaries like I Am Trying to Break Your Heart about the band Wilco. And now he is a documentary director. He made Helvetica about typography. And his new film is called Objectified. It's about the design of objects. It screens this week at the Barbican in London and comes out on DVD later this month. So, Gary... Do you remember like the first object you came upon where you thought that's not just a clock or whatever, it's a piece of art? Wow. Uh, I, I think I like skateboards and, you know, I was really into surfing when I was um, growing up. Those are probably the first objects that I really thought about the form of them and also the people behind the object, like the surfboard shapers. Like who, who would come up with something this cool? Well, but also looking at the form of it and then seeing the function, like seeing how that form translated to when I was surfing. Well, and it seems like a lot of people are getting interested in the form and the function of things. There's been a lot of interest in design for the last many years. Why do you think that is? I, I mean, I have been making the films because I want to watch films about, about design and about designers. There's so much creativity and so much work and thought that goes into the simplest, you know, toothbrush or, or, or all the stuff that we surround ourselves with. What, what's your favorite story behind a simple object? <laughs> God, there there are so many. I mean, so many times they're. I think they're very kind of utilitarian, like those um, OXO good grips. You know, potato peeler. Those came about just because the um, guy who manufactured them, his wife had arthritis, and she just couldn't hold on to the old standard metal peeler. Someone in the in Objectified says that's like a, a quote from Henry Ford that every object tells a story if you know how to read it. One of the earliest examples would be the first emperor of China. Each of his archers made their own arrows. And so if, say, an archer died, um, a fellow archer couldn't grab the arrows from his quiver because the arrows literally didn't fit his bow. So the first emperor and his advisors came up with a way of standardizing the design of the arrows so that each arrow would fit any bow. All right, we ask uh, two questions of everyone on this show. The first question is always, what question should we not ask you if we meet you at a dinner party? What are you kind of tired of answering? Um, well, like after I made Helvetica, the question was always, um, what's your next movie going to be about? Times New Roman? Uh, Or Comic Sans or Ariel or just insert name of other font here. I can't tell you how many hundreds of times that I've heard that same stupid question. Is that why you made this film? Uh, Exactly. That's what the whole trilogy. I try to, you know, get rid of the Helvetica (laughs) thing. So our second question, tell us something we don't know, something that you have not shared in interviews before. (laughs) Um, this is good because it's also food related. When I was in college, I worked in the back of a honey baked ham store where they do those spiral sliced hams. And, uh, and the secret actually of the honey glaze, it's take a big blowtorch. You had to get the entire ham just scalding. And then we used a sifter full of sugar, just like sifted the sugar on through the flame of the blowtorch. So it sort of liquefied over the ham. It's like the creme brulee of meats. It was pretty. Uh, it was pretty fun. I really like the meat brulee, dude. Yes. You, should, you should run with that. Too late. <laughs> they beat me to it. No, that I actually caught that movie. Objectified. And, yeah, and uh, it, it got me to thinking about some designs I had myself. Like, like um, the pillow canteen. <laughs> it's it's like a bladder of water that you keep in your pillow. For those mornings when you're way too tired to get out of bed, but you're thirsty, and you just kind of like, you know, suckle on a little (laughs) straw coming out of it. (laughs) 
that might pair nicely with uh, I had a, a thing I came up with called the hoagie funnel the hoagie funnel it's like you attach <laughs> it to the back of a hoagie when you bite into it all the stuff that squirts out the other end goes down the funnel into another <laughs> bun and creates a second sandwich genius that, that is pretty genius you know if you had a pillow canteen a hoagie funnel and a healthcare system that worked you'd be set you'd be good to go for a look at some rather average design you can head to our website it's dinnerpartydownload.com So we've met our guest of honor, and now it's time for the main course, where we tell you what's going on in the world of food. So Rico, you know when I come to your desk in the middle of the day and I start eating all those wasabi peas and salty snacks you keep, you know, at your desk? No. Well, I do it when you're not around. <laughs> but anyway, Great. it turns out I've been on to something. Uh, freeloading? <laughs> um, I, I like to think of it as foraging. Right. And uh, and it's it's apparently what food people, other food people are doing these days. Iso Robbins is the founder of Forage SF which is an organization that's turning the Bay Area into like this free-form wild farm. Mm. And at the heart of what they do is this subscription program where you pay a fee in exchange for a weekly or monthly box of foraged food. All right. And uh, the other day, he and I foraged for pie and coffee <laughs> at Mission Pies in San Francisco. And I had a question for him. Have you ever gotten sick? I've never gotten sick from foraged food. Really? Even while you were learning? No, no, not. Yeah, no, I never have. Just checking it out. Tell us about some of the things that are in your boxes and that you forage. There's a lot of wild edible seaweeds because we're up by the coast, especially in the summer. You get a lot of nori, um, wild fennel, wild radish seed pods are another real favorite of mine. Another thing we do is glean fruit. That's just fruit from people's backyards around the city, stuff that would otherwise go to waste. What's something you forage that people just were a little bit put off by because they'd rather not have it foraged? Wild foraged escargot. That you found yourself? Yeah, yeah. I went and collected, actually in Golden Gate Park, I went and collected some snails. You need to purge them for a couple weeks. So that basically just means like feeding them what you want them to eat. So you keep them alive and it's kind of like little snail foie gras. What do you feed them? I fed them wild fennel, cucumbers, lettuce, oatmeal is also another thing people feed them. Basically you just want to like kind of clean them out and flavor them in the way that you want. Wow. So oatmeal, just as it works in humans, kind of purges snails. Yeah, exactly. Just kind of cleans them right out. <laughs> so moving on... Um, it occurs to me that uh, foraging is as local as locavore could get, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it makes this really intense awareness of season and place, and I think that's it's great. You know, like when you put it like that, foraging, which, you know, for some people would be a little bit off-putting, it doesn't feel hippy-dippy to me. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I try not to think of myself as too hippy-dippy. Um, I think it just makes sense, you know? I mean, it, it's, it's pretty insane how quickly we've gotten away from it. I think it's kind of funny that it's thought of as this new thing. You know, it's like a new cutting-edge food culture. It's like gathering food, which is like the oldest thing there is. It's like people discovering walking as exercise. Yeah, you know, you don't need to do it seriously, but even if you're, like, taking a hike, like, before, you, you kind of see nature around you, and it's very beautiful, but once you've learned about three or four wild foods, you're going to see those everywhere you go, and it's going to really make you pay attention to the to the area you're in a lot more. So it's kind of like bird watching if you get to eat the birds at the end. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So just so everybody knows, um, those boxes from Farge SF aren't just vegetables. They also actually have line-caught fish from the Bay Area. So the, so there's protein as well? There, there is. There's mushrooms as well. But what if I want, like, pasta? <laughs> is there line-caught lasagna? You know, no. <laughs> no, I think there's actually, in farging, there's this variation on the two-second rule. Anything on the ground more than an hour, <laughs> if you pick it up, it's considered foraging. <laughs> 
And that's the dinner party download for this week. We have a new fan page on Facebook. Woohoo! Look for it there. You can also catch us on the Arts and Culture Show Off Ramp, hosted by John Raby and Queen of Kim. You'll find that at kpcc.org. Thanks to Vanessa Romo and Jessica Edwards. We leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. This week's tune comes courtesy of you. We did an online call out to our audience, and this song was suggested by our listener, Kirsten Pugh. It's by a band called Sockert, and it's called E Comir Adu Samti Dit, or something like that. I have a feeling that they're not from England. Yeah, maybe you could send a pronouncer next time. Bon appetit. Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And Rico, um, I've been meaning to ask you, have you been admiring the smoke that's been coming from the Hollywood Hills of late? Blood and ashes! <laughs>